Over the last few years, there has been an increasing focus on sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in the legal profession. In this program, Alyssa Baxter, General Counsel and Head of Legal and Compliance at LawCover, and Michaela Maloney, partner at K&L Gates, discuss what constitutes sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in the workplace, and particularly in a legal practice context. So thanks for joining me today, Michaela. Um, in the past year, there's been an increasing scrutiny on sexual harassment um, and sexual misconduct in the legal profession. So I thought it might be an opportune time to talk to you about what is acceptable conduct in the workplace and the types of employment claims that can arise from sexual misconduct. Thanks, Alyssa. Certainly, it might be a good place to start to actually define exactly what sexual misconduct or sexual harassment is. Perfect. And ultimately, um, there are definitions in each state and there is also a definition under the Federal Sex Discrimination Act and they are all very similar and they have very common elements. So I thought I'd just go through the three elements that need to be established in order for there to be sexual harassment. Ultimately, sexual harassment is unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature in circumstances where it's reasonable for a person to be offended humiliated or intimidated by that conduct. So if we just unpack those three concepts, the first is unwelcome. And that is a subjective test. And what that means is, what does the person who is alleging the sexual harassment, so the victim, what do they consider is unwelcome? So it's irrelevant if the perpetrator or the respondent to the complaint doesn't think the conduct is un irrelevant. So if I'm making a complaint, it is all about my perception of the conduct. And that's very important because obviously when we've got someone coming forward with a complaint or bringing a claim to a state tribunal or a federal court, they will be the people who will have to establish that it was unwelcome to them. Mm -hmm. So we're always looking at that person um, and, and how they feel about the conduct. Do they need to express that it's unwelcome? No, and that's where we can get um, some difficulties where one person assumes that the conduct is welcome and the other one perhaps is quiet about their feelings about the conduct. And what we often see in these circumstances is there's a power disparity mm. and that means that the person who is the victim may not feel comfortable saying, actually, I don't like that conduct, I wish you would stop. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for us to look at this and say, well, why don't they just say that we do have often have that power differential um, and people just don't feel comfortable. So it's if difficult you're imagining yeah, to tell your boss, you know, can you just not comment on how I look in these clothes today? Exactly. And if you think about it in a law firm context, every year we have um, junior lawyers and graduates coming through in firms and, you know, your first month in the office, you're not necessarily going to pipe up and say, you know, the way you look at me and the way you comment on my clothing every day makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So that's the first text. The next test is whether that unwelcome conduct is conduct of a sexual nature. Mm -hmm. Now, this will be really obvious. So, you know, constant requests for dates, 
leering at someone, making sexually suggestive remarks will all be very obvious um, examples of sexual conduct or conduct of a sexual nature. The thing that can get more blurry is is innuendo Mm -hmm. or perhaps something where I'm making a comment, not specifically to you, Elisa, but you're hearing it, um, and, and that con- that con- comment does have some sexual content. What about talking about, be- like, my if someone was talking to me about their own sexual experiences and they were, you know, that wasn't about me, it's about them, what they've done on the weekend, is that of a sexual nature? Yes, and if you don't want to hear that, When we go back to our first test, it's subjective. What does Alyssa feel? And if that makes you feel uncomfortable and you say that's unwelcome, then that will be unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. (laughs) It doesn't need to be directed at you. And you'll often hear the term hostile work environment. And that might be someone who's going about their day-to-day business, is not really the intended recipient of the conversations, but has to hear, for example, in the lunchroom you know, tales of people's sexual exploits on the weekend mm. and those kind of things. So that would definitely be unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. And the third, third test is an objective test, and that would be would a reasonable person anticipate in the circumstances that the person who's alleging the sexual harassment would be offended, humiliated or intimidated? As I said, it's an objective test, so we look at it um, and we take into account the age of the complainant, their race or ethnicity, the context in which the harassment occurred. My view is, as a general rule of thumb, if you have unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature in a professional environment like a law firm, then in most circumstances, um, it will be reasonable for that person to feel offended, humiliated or intimidated. So... Mm -hmm. I think a good rule of thumb is to simply assume that that third limb is going to be satisfied. And that way, if you see unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, you'll know, okay, this is something where we could be in danger of a complaint or or a more formal claim, and this is something that I need to take steps to prevent. So in terms of examples, what are some things that people... Um, maybe older people might think are okay that are really not okay to do in law firms? There's a number of, I mean, we have, it's interesting because I said to you we take into account the age of the complainant and that can work both ways because there might be some conversations that young people think are totally fine that Mm. older people are affected by and vice versa. So really it is a matter of thinking could this make someone feel uncomfortable from their perspective? And the kind of things where we see people not necessarily understanding, because, I I mean, I hope, and and certainly from what I experience in professional service environments like law firms, we're not at the, you know, naked calendars on the wall. We're not at the people sharing pornographic material. So we have moved along. Um, So it tends to be more interpersonal comments and that can be comments as you mentioned about someone talking about their own life and their own sex life or you know making comments about other people or it can be comments directed towards a person about their appearance Um, it might be you know questions about their sex life um, or their love life 
It might be a, a constant request for dates, especially after prior refusal. Um, so really that, that concept of conduct of a sexual nature is very broad and you really do need to, I mean, if, I think if you go to the workplace and, and you think about your conversations and you think, could this make me, could this make another person feel uncomfortable, then you're going to be fairly safe in, in what you do. But, yes, we, we do see it tend to come up where people don't think about their conduct before they speak. Mm-hmm. And, obviously, the most common type of sexual harassment claim we get relates to sexual harassment that occurs when alcohol has been consumed. That probably won't surprise anyone. Um, people have a few drinks, they get a bit looser, and perhaps the rules that might ordinarily apply in the office, um, they consider don't apply. And that might be a nice time just to remind everyone that this is anywhere at any time in connection with employment. And so what that means is it applies equally to your end-of-view function as it does when you're in the office boardroom. And so does it also apply to a couple of colleagues going out for a drink after work? If there's that requisite connection with employment, so if they're friends and they're going out and it's not a work-sponsored event, um, then I think the argument will be that's not in employment, that's your private life. Um, But if it's after a Christmas function where the firm is putting a tab behind the bar and encouraging people to go, um, then I think we would still there would still be that connection with employment and with the workplace. And workplace has been defined very broadly in some recent decisions to include the bar, to include the cab home. Hmm. So we, we just need to be mindful of that. Can I just talk to you about this question of what's sexual and what's not? Um, is there a difference if you're talking about explicitly about um, sexual conduct or if someone is talking about how they feel, talking about their emotions, this kind of constant asking someone out on a date, I'm really in love with you, is that still um, in in the box of sexual harassment? Definitely. And there was a, a relatively famous case of Hughes and Hill, which um, some of our listeners will have heard of, where ultimately the respondent in that matter believed that it wasn't sexual harassment because he felt it was genuine love and that he needed to express that to the person who was the unfortunate recipient of his um, attention. And the court made it very clear that that will still be conduct of a sexual nature. Okay. Are cultural norms changing around these things, do you think? Look, I think that in some ways we there might be things that we would talk about in a more normal way that we may not have 20 years ago, but I also see that people's perception of attention of a romantic or, or a sexual nature, um, people are very clear about what their rights are. Mm-hmm. And so 20 years ago where someone might have been asked out on a date twice and that might have been the end of it, um, now they might bring a complaint. Um, and, of course, what we're seeing at the moment with um, people working from home is this blurring of um, work um, and home and 
you know, I've I've certainly advised on matters where people have been drinking and then gone on to Zoom calls, which you wouldn't ordinarily have in the office, but you're you're at home, you know, people are having a drink and then going on to like a later call. And um, I do think the boundaries are blurring um, more than they ever have. Mm-hmm. And as an employer, um, firms just need to be really clear about what is appropriate and what isn't. What about and it's a new it's a new era for many of us having um, people work at home so much of the time. Yeah, I oh, know absolutely. Um, it also strikes me that um, there's a lot more communication that happens in writing now, a lot more texting and emailing than used to happen, which can just end up either being misinterpreted or becoming evidence. That's certainly right. And um, I can remember when I started practice, I'm showing my age here, and we had to update the sexual harassment policies to include texts. And, you know, now there's Snapchat and there's so so many ways to communicate. Um, And I think that people do feel a bit more liberal in texts than they might in emails. Um, and, and there's absolutely no difference, as you say, between a text and an email in terms of it being used as evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what kinds of claims can employees bring if they are being sexually harassed? Okay, there's really two routes that an employee can take. The first is an internal avenue, and that is using the firm's anti-discrimination, equal opportunity, sexual harassment policy, whatever it's called, to bring a claim. Um, And we might talk in a little bit about the policies and and what they should say and and that firms should have them. I might just stress here, if you don't have a policy that prohibits sexual harassment, um, then I would recommend when you finish listening to this podcast that you go and get one because that's a really, really important step, both in preventing it but also defending any claim. So if there is an internal policy, it should have a complaints procedure that sets out exactly how complaints will be made and an employee can make a complaint through that internal process. And normally that involves some form of internal investigation. Depending on who's involved, it may be more appropriate to have an external investigator look at the circumstances Sexual harassment matters are notoriously difficult to investigate and I do a lot of investigations and that is because they tend to happen one-on-one with no witnesses. Um, You know, that's obviously different if it happens at the Christmas party on the dance floor um, and there's lots of witnesses, but generally speaking, they tend tend to happen when other people aren't around and so it's one person's word against another. Yeah. Um, and they're interesting cases to read because often it's about credibility of the witnesses and the judges are weighing that up. Mm-hmm. So it could be that you go down an internal route. There is no obligation on employees to do that before they seek an external avenue. Um, and each state and territory has um, some form of equal opportunity commission or anti-discrimination board where complaints can be made. Um, There is also a federal organisation, the Australian Human Rights Commission, where people can bring a claim. Um, So they can make a complaint and generally speaking, whilst the procedures differ a little bit from state to state and federally, ultimately the focus is on resolution and so the matter will be um, 
generally, if the parties agree, listed for some form of conciliation conference where the parties will talk through the issues and seek to resolve them. If they don't resolve, um, then the employee will have the opportunity of taking it either to a tribunal. If we're talking in the federal jurisdiction, then the employer will have the opportunity to take it to either the federal circuit court or the federal court to bring a claim. And so when um, someone brings a litigated claim, how long does that take? That's an excellent question. There can be significant delays um, and the state and federal commissions can take a significant amount of time to list the matter for conciliation. Having said that, I've been involved in high-profile ones where they can be listed quite quickly, but um, sometimes that's a resourcing issue, so um, be aware of that. In terms of the Federal Circuit Court and the Federal Court, look, if if you were lucky in terms of the judge that you got in the list and in terms of the workload of that judge, it may take a year. Um, but I've had ones that have taken up to two years to be heard. Wow. And they are really difficult matters to run. You know, they're, they're, they're personal, obviously they're personal claims, sometimes brought by people who are still employees, very upsetting claims for people to bring, difficult claims for firms to defend when there's no witnesses. Um, and, yeah, they can be quite long, drawn-out affairs. And they rely mostly on evidence, oral evidence, and so it's difficult to predict the outcome. Exactly. And what tends to happen in the courts is that rather than proceeding by way of uh, affidavit material, it's often when it is a he said, she said, um, and, and, and generally it does tend to be males and females, um, when it's a he said, she said, it's really important for the court to be able to test the evidence. Mm -hmm. And so courts will often say that they want to proceed via viva voce evidence, so live evidence rather than relying on affidavit materials as we do so often. And so that adds time, obviously, to the hearing um, and it's a way of the court being able to really test the credibility of both um, the complainant or applicant and the respondent. So if you were a small firm, there weren't very many partners in the firm, then it's likely that um, it's going to be very personal and take up a lot of time, a lot of professional time from the firm's point of view. And then potentially you've also lost an employee who's not either working very hard or is no longer working there. So it sounds like it's a really time and resource um, consuming process. It is. And one thing I might say is it's not uncommon for a sexual harassment complaint that is proceeding, for example, in the federal jurisdiction to also that employee to bring a workers' compensation claim. Mm -hmm. And so you're dealing with both claims. And it is, I think of all claims, they are the most personal. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, that's not that's not to say, you know, that you're just looking at it at the complainant. If you're the respondent, it's very personal too. Exactly. Um, and so they're difficult for everyone. And um, as I said, they they don't tend to 
be quick to get onto the court, uh, and that's that's not a criticism of the court. Obviously, the court's got got um, a high workload, particularly at the moment with a little bit of um, delay due to COVID. So certainly, it's not a matter that you can deal with in three months, like we might be used to at the Fair Work Commission with an unfair dismissal claim. Okay. So what kind of sanctions are you then talking about when you get to the end of your two-year trial? Sure. There's uh, a lot will depend on the economic loss of the complainant, but let's assume for a moment that the person who has brought the claim is successful in showing that that they have been sexually harassed and therefore the court determines that it's appropriate to make some form of compensatory order to compensate that person. What they'll look at is whether that person has been out of work and so they'll look at past economic loss. They'll look at whether that person has been... uh, ..their ability to work in the future has been impacted because of this. And often when you get this far down the line, there are a number of people who who haven't worked for a number of years um, and will have medical evidence suggesting that they won't work for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so that's obviously very important to take into account. I might give you an example of um, the case of Richardson and Oracle and this was a matter that was heard in the federal court and ultimately the employee gave evidence that she had been psychologically severely impacted by the sexual harassment and she also gave evidence of the fact that it had led to the breakdown in her marriage and there was medical evidence that that supported that. And this was an interesting matter because it was heard in the federal court. And until this matter, there was an assumption by practitioners that, you know, generally general damages, so damages for pain and suffering, would be, you know, up to 20000 in these matters, no matter what the medical evidence was. And in this particular case, the federal court found in favour of Ms. Richardson and ordered her to pay general dam- uh, sorry ordered Oracle to pay general damages of eighteen thousand dollars, and it was appealed on that point, and it was appealed on the point that those damages were inadequate, taking into account the medical evidence about the impact on her, and ultimately the full court of the federal court found that the damages awarded were manifestly inadequate given the physical, psychological and other non-economic loss and damage caused by the sexual harassment. Um, And it's an interesting case because what they do is they depart from 15 years of case law and say, we need to look at this again. We can't just be saying up to $20,000 for these people. We need to look at the, um, forget what, what has been the conventional range and have regards to the actual injuries and the prevailing community standards need to change and put a higher value on compensation for pain and suffering and loss of enjoyment of life. Um, and in this particular case, they increased her general damages to $130,000. Wow, that's a huge so, jump. Yeah, so it was a huge it was a huge change in the approach of the court. 
Now, obviously, there was the medical evidence to back that up, um, but it certainly, it it marked a turning of the tide, I think everyone would agree, Um, and certainly it's something that is in most of the letters that we get from um, plaintiff's firms now. They refer to that case. Um, And I might just quickly mention another case, Ewan and Vergara, and in that, again, a federal court case, and in that case, there was a finding of damages a total of 476,163 and that was 293,000 past economic loss, 63,000 future, 110 general damages and then the remainder was expenses incurred. And so these are not, you know, no longer are we saying you could settle this for $20,000. These are cases which the court has said um, quite rightly attract damages um, for pain and suffering mm-hmm. and, and significant damages. So we're going to put um, references to those cases in the show notes. Um, it's interesting that the courts seem to be moving with community standards around this and taking um, um, the mental impact of sexual harassment really seriously. Um, so that deals with employer-employee sexual harassment, but is it diff- different when the sexual advances um, happen in a work context but they're not by the employer? If they're, say, from a client or from a service provider like a barrister? Yes. Uh, this is an interesting area. And earlier this year, in March, Um, somewhat overshadowed by a pandemic, but the um, Australian Human Rights Commission had been undertaking an inquiry into sexual harassment and released their Respect at Work report. And it is a very interesting read. It's a very long read, um, but it it looks at exactly this. And one of the recommendations was that given the different ways in which people now work, and as we've seen from March, people are working at home and we have volunteers and we have, you know, paid work and unpaid work and we have people like barristers who are self-employed and won't fall into the definition of employee. They have recommended an overhaul of how the law applies to self-employed people um, and customers and clients. Ultimately, the Act at the moment makes it clear that it applies to all workplace participants um, in relation to conduct in the workplace. And recent cases have made it clear that the concept of of a workplace is broad um, and the federal court in Nguyen and Vergara, which as you've mentioned, we'll put put the citation forth, have stated a workplace is not confined to the place of work of the participants but extends to a place at which the participants work or otherwise carry out functions in relation to being a workplace participant. So if we think about that in a law firm context, it would be going out to clients, it would be going to court. In Ewan and Vergara, it was a meeting that they had in a bar, it was walking back, it was taxis after functions. And so it will be interpreted very broadly uh, with barristers if they are not, and, and that hasn't been considered to my knowledge in the cases, but if they are not workplace participants themselves and they'd have to fall into the definition of contract agent, 
then they certainly will be providing services Mm -hmm. and it's unlawful to provide um, to sexually harass someone in the provision of services. Similarly with clients, um, they will be seeking services, then it's unlawfully it's unlawful to sexually harass. So I think there's a way of getting getting around what probably wasn't intended to apply that broadly uh, in the Act, but certainly it's something that's on the Human Rights Commission's radar to make that broader. Um, and what we've seen in some cases is that if they can't fit within sexual harassment, they'll bring it under sex discrimination, which is a has a broader um, reach in terms of, people that can bring the claim and against whom they can make claims. So I think that um, it's definitely an area that probably needs to be tested. What I will say is quite apart from the sexual harassment laws that we're talking about, um, law firms as employers have a duty towards their employees to provide a workplace that is safe and as far as reasonably practicable um, without risk to health. And that extends to interactions with clients, particularly in circumstances where that law firm might be on notice um, that it's not a safe workplace, that, you know, that they're sending someone to a client and they know that it's not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so employers will be captured under some um, legislative scheme. Um, and so what I would recommend is if, an, as an employer, you are put on notice, um, for example, that a client has acted inappropriately, um, then you take steps. And, it, and it's, it's, you know, safety law 101, you're on notice of a risk, um, you assess that risk, and then you take steps to um, either eliminate that risk or reduce that risk as far as reasonably possible. And that might be a discussion with the client. And what we we talked about earlier is the fact that sometimes people you know, there, there are certainly people in this world who understand what sexually harassment, sexual harassment is and set out to engage in that conduct. Mm. But there are also a lot of people in the world who don't understand, you know, that asking in circumstances, for example, a, a, a very junior lawyer asking questions um, about their weekend and about their boyfriend and making comments about their appearance might make that person feel uncomfortable. And so if that's the case and you're putting that client on notice, um, look, the conversation you had made, you know, our first-year lawyer feel uncomfortable. We'd appreciate it if you, you kept it to a more professional level. Sometimes that's all that's needed. Sure. And I guess there are um, steps that you can take about sending a very inexperienced young person out into a client, particularly if you know that, that client sometimes says things that might be interpreted um, as inappropriate. Uh, so I think there are things that employers can do to make their employees feel safer. Um, what other steps? Oh, you talked earlier about having sexual harassment policies. What other steps should employers take to make sure that their workplace is safe in, in this context? There are a number of steps and I might just take a step back and just briefly comment on the concept of vicarious liability. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the concept of sexual harassment, what, that, what the law says is you, if you have an employee um, who engages in sexual harassment, then generally in the course of their employment, 
then generally you are going to be vicariously liable for that employee, as you are in, in, in any other area of law. There is an exception in both state, territory and federal legislation, and that is an exception where you've taken reasonable steps to prevent a contravention of the Act. And the courts have looked at this, and so this might be a case where um, as, a, as a law firm, you find out one of your managers has sexually harassed one of your junior employees and you say, hey, that's not on. You know, we, we're a law firm. We've, we've made it very clear that um, sexual harassment is prohibited in the workplace and we've conducted training and that's not on. We've taken steps to prevent this and this manager was effectively off on a frolic of his own. Um, and what the cases say about what are reasonable steps is they make it really clear that the there needs to be a written policy. Mm-hmm. Um, that policy needs to be very clear about what applies in the workplace and what's prohibited in the workplace, but also that it is prohibited under law because obviously that carries weight as well. Uh, it needs to set out clearly a complaints procedure so that if one of your employees does have an issue, they know how to raise that complaint. And generally speaking, there might be an informal process and there might be a formal process that the employee can follow. Uh, And it's also very important that this is not just a policy that sits on a shelf or sits on your intranet, but that staff are trained in relation to that policy and that the law firm always acts consistently consistently with that policy so that when complaints are raised, they consider the um, conduct that's alleged and they investigate it. And if that conduct is substantiated, that they actually take steps to ensure that it doesn't happen again. So it's a whole thorough process rather than just downloading a policy from the internet and saying, we've ticked that box, we're now protected. It's about ensuring and really doing as you say you're going to do rather than just having a policy and then allowing a culture um, that that doesn't make it clear that these kind of comments and actions are prohibited. Or that they only apply to some people and not others. Exactly. So consistent application of the policy is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can you, so just in, in kind of wrapping up, can you give me an idea of um, the kinds of costs that this can impose on a business if you have a sexual harassment complaint or a sexual harassment claim against a firm? Certainly. So as I mentioned, these matters, particularly the ones that go down the the federal court route, are not easy matters to run. They're very much a he said, she said, and they can involve, often what happens is then there's trying to, there's a desire to, from the complainant to run evidence about the the culture of the firm and that it's not consistent with, for example, the sexual harassment policy, that then needs to be responded to. So it's not unusual, um, you know, for these matters to run into the hundreds of thousands in legal costs. And as I said, they they can take years to run. Mm -hmm. And so it it wouldn't be unusual, I think, um, in some of the cases I've mentioned, they were $250,000 worth of legal costs. And, and so we have, when you have damages of like half a million dollars and then 250000 in legal costs. Yes. And then, of course, there are the other costs, the, the non-monetary costs of having this cloud hanging over the workplace for a number of years. And then you've got people who you may need to call to give evidence. Um, so 
as I said, they're, they're, they tend to be messy cases to run because of the subject matter um, and very expensive, both from a potential liability in terms of damages, but also just from a legal cost. Yeah, okay. So I just wanted to mention at the end um, that there it is possible to get insurance for these types of claims that cover both the defence costs and um, the, the damages awards, um, and Law Cover does offer a lawyer's management liability policy, uh, which covers employment practices claims, not only sexual harassment, but some of the other types of um, of claims, so, and we'll put details of that in the in the show notes as well. Um, what other advice, just in closing, would you give to law firms to avoid these types of claims in the future? I think it's a big question. I think we are seeing society change and what's appropriate change. And law firms, unlike other industries, will have this whole spectrum of ages. And so it's not unusual to have people, you know, in their early 20s and people in their 70s and 60s. Um, and I think it's about being respectful to all of those age groups and understanding uh, that something that may seem commonplace and not offensive for one age group could be for others mm -hmm. and being very mindful of that. And I think if we go back to a comment I made earlier about, you know, before comments are made, thinking about could this be make someone feel uncomfortable or could this be perceived as disrespectful? Um, because it's not necessarily behaviour that is going to win a federal court case and be successful. Ultimately, you don't want your employees in a workplace where they don't feel comfortable. Um, so I think it's about creating a culture where those kind of comments um, really don't are not tolerated uh, rather than saying, well, I don't think that really strictly meets the definition of sexual harassment. I think if someone's coming to you and saying, I feel really uncomfortable about these comments, that in itself should be a warning to you um, and that should be nipped in the bud very early. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Michaela. Thanks very much, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.